We thank you for visiting Christian Bible Temple and pray the following message speaks to your heart. In our church, but we're going to do it today because I think, <clears throat> excuse me, it's very appropriate. I think we need to pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. Amen. Let us all put our hands over our hearts. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Remain standing and open, let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12. <clears throat> Let us listen to the word of God this morning. <clears throat> Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him <coughs> endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. <clears throat> May the, God, the Lord bless this reading of his word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our great God and heavenly Father, we come before your presence this morning thanking you for this day that you have given us. Thanking you for the liberty that we have, not just as citizen of a free, citizens of a free country, because we know, Lord, that many who are free citizens in any country, they're still slaves of sin. But thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have in you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for having delivered us from the bondage of sin, making us free men and women in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this morning that we can be here to worship you in spirit and in truth asking that you speak to our hearts today as we come together to listen to your word, to be in fellowship, communion with you and other believers. <clears throat> we ask that your Holy Spirit today will cover this place, hover over us, control this service, and may everything we do and say today, we may do it to your honor and glory. <clears throat> For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> As <clears throat> we were singing earlier, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, to thee I sing. 
Every time I hear that song or that hymn, I cannot help but remember a very memorable day back in history. How many of you, especially you African-Americans, have heard of Marian Anderson? None? You have. Well, Marian Anderson was a very famous singer back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s. She was born in Philadelphia, and her mother was a washwoman, and she had two sisters, and her church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, sent her to study music because she had an exceptional voice. And <clears throat> by the way, she became the most, and she still is, the most famous alto in history. She had the most unbelievable voice. And I remember her name since I was a young teenager. Everybody spoke about Marian Anderson. She had conquered Europe with her voice. She sang everywhere. And the only country she could not conquer was her own. This is back in the 30s when things were not what they are today. And so one day she was engaged to sing at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C. This is in 1939. I was not even born yet. And because she was an African-American, she was forbidden to enter Constitution Hall. And the Daughters of the, the uh, organization called the Daughters of the American Revolution, D.A.R., was the one that forbade her from singing in Constitution Hall. And Mrs. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Roosevelt, the first lady at the time, resigned in protest. Eleanor Roosevelt. And Marian Anderson, who was always a lady, and I believe she was a believer. She was always a lady. She always had dignity. She did not protest. She did not say, do anything negative. She just went to the top of the Lincoln Memorial, at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, in front of 75,000 people and in many members of government, and she sang from there. I believe that if you go on YouTube and you type in Marian Anderson Lincoln Memorial, it'll come up. It's, there's, there's a film of that. She's singing, My Country Tis of Thee. How interesting that she was forbade from singing. No, there she is. She was forbade from singing in a, in a hall, maybe in front of two or 3,000 people, 
she ended up singing in front of 75,000 people. So her apparent defeat was a victory. And uh, she did it in, with such dignity. She was the first African-American to sing at the Metropolitan Opera in New York in 1955 at the twilight of her career. She opened the door for African-American singers. And later on, after she retired, she was made goodwill ambassador of the United States to the United Nations. The Bible tells me that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And anywhere you go in the music world, you will always hear a beautiful testimony about Marian Anderson. Nobody has anything negative to say about her. As a matter of fact, the famous conductor, Arturo Toscanini, said to Marian Anderson one day, Miss Anderson, your voice comes along once every 100 years. The Lord blessed her with the most beautiful contralto voice. Every time she sings, I feel like somebody's caressing my ear. Every time I listen to her voice. And that goes to show us when we trust the Lord and do things right, and the glory is his, he honors us. So commit your ways unto the Lord, and let us thank the Lord for people who stood up for justice, righteousness. No nation is perfect. Our country is not perfect by far. But thank the Lord today. We can still sing, my country, peace of thee. And thank the Lord for the liberties that we have. Amen? Having spoken a little bit of history and having uh, hopefully taught you something you didn't know, how many of you never heard that before? You haven't lived. You haven't lived. I knew about that even before I came to the United States when I was still in Argentina. Maybe because I like music. But it's important to know these things. Sometimes we ignore our heritage. Nobody, see, they don't teach those things in school anymore. They need to. There's so many things they don't teach in schools anymore. And uh, we need to make it a point to learn. Amen? There's a, a saying in Spanish that says, el saber no ocupa lugar. Cierto? What does that mean? It means knowledge does not take up any room. So it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. It doesn't take up any room because our brain, the Lord created it in such a way that we can assimilate a lot of knowledge. Amen? Now make sure you don't get puffed up. That's, that's the only thing. Because uh, the Bible also says that knowledge, um, what's the word? I, my brain is like my voice this morning. Um, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So everything we teach here is not just to teach knowledge, but also to do it in love so that we can edify one another. Amen? All right. So let us now turn to the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 12. I trust everybody received a copy of the outline this morning. Believe it or not, we have arrived at the 12th chapter of Hebrews. In this chapter, we're talking about the believer's walk of faith.
the believer's walk of faith. And the first four verses that we read this morning talk to us about following the example of Jesus. The first thing we must do is to look at the witnesses that we have before us. Let us read again the first verse. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now having presented a list of heroes of the faith in the previous chapter, we talked about all these heroes from the Old Testament, all the way from Abel to the judges, okay? Now the writer proceeds to encourage once more all these Jewish believers, the ones who received this letter. There is no chapter division in the Greek text. So it is important to bear in mind this chapter continues what was said in the previous chapter. The theme is endurance. Endurance. The Jewish believers were getting tired and wanted to give up. How many of you feel tired at times? And you feel like giving up? See? The writer encourages them to move forward in their faith in the Messiah. And he uses the illustration of a race in a stadium to make his point. See, when athletes train, they don't start training the day before. They start training years in advance, and they do it, I mean, every day. When you go to the armed forces, they train you basic training. They teach you, what do they teach you in basic training? Basically, endurance, because you got to keep going, okay? And they teach you how to defend yourself, but everything has to do with endurance, okay? The writer makes a passionate appeal for loyalty to the Messiah and points to the heroes of the faith that we found in chapter 11 as an example of endurance to follow. He pictures present believers as contestants in the race, striving to win a prize, while Old Testament believers are pictured sitting in the bleachers, in the bleachers as spectators in the sense that they are witnessing to them regarding the life of faith and that by putting that faith in practice together with patient endurance the race can be won the old testament saints saints are not the ones looking but the contestants are to look at the witnesses now who are the contestants we are we are running the race right now the believers in the old testament already ran the race now we are running the race and this verse does not teach, though, that those in heaven can see what is going on on earth. Some people say, oh, my mom is watching from heaven. We don't know that. There's no verse in the Bible that says that those who passed on are able to see what we... I'm not saying they can't, but I, there is no verse that says that. Okay? Now, it, the, the, the phrase surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses means that the heroes of the faith, noted in chapter 11... Are, no, are to be in the minds of the believers running the race now. So when we read this verse, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we are the ones that need to be looking at the example of the heroes, and that should motivate us to continue running and having endurance. Amen? Right? 
Wrong? Right. Okay? What's the opposite of right? Wrong, not left. Wrong. Okay? Now, believers today are to be remembered, are to remember that these heroes of the faith are what what they accomplish through faith and to imitate them by exercising the same faith and endurance they exercised. The word cloud means mass of clouds. Okay? And this is why it says so great a cloud. It pictures the Old Testament saints rising as tears upon tears of seats, rising up as a gray cloud. The believers are to keep in mind a dense group of people who are witnesses that the race can be won by faith and patient endurance. Also, the word witnesses does not mean spectators. Okay? Some people say, oh, I'm a witness. Yeah, yeah, it's not, that's not the same uh, meaning in the Greek. It means martyrs. The word martyras in Greek is both a witness and a martyr. And this brings to mind the Apostle Paul's exhortation in Romans 15.4. Patience means endurance and comfort means encouragement. One way to develop these two qualities is by becoming familiar with the Old Testament where these stories are. Keeping in mind they are written for our admonition. Do you know why the Old Testament was written? For our admonition, for our exhortation, for us to know and follow those examples, illustrations of the principles of the spiritual life. What do we learn from Abraham? Faith. What do we learn from Isaac? Submission. What do we learn from Jacob? How not to deceive. Right? How to persevere with God. What do we learn from Joseph? Brotherly love. If we go down the line of all the Old Testament heroes, we learn something from each one of them. What do we learn from David? Believer or not? Purity. What do we learn from Solomon? Wisdom. What do we learn from Moses? Meekness. <clears throat> so are we supposed to be familiarize ourselves with the Old Testament? Yeah. Who says the Old Testament is obsolete? Don't ever say that about the Word of God. Okay? So we see here that the stories in the Old Testament are to be kept in mind, that they were written for our admonition, our exhortation, and uh, which will help us run the race and win. Every Old Testament example is relevant for us today. So we are to look, first of all, at the cloud of witnesses. Secondly, we are to look at ourselves. Look what it says in the text here. After the first part of the verse, the great cloud of witnesses, the second part says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In order to run the race successfully, we are to first lay aside every weight. This means taking off everything that prevents one 
from running the race well. Any weight or obstacle must be laid aside. In the case of these Jewish believers, it was Judaism. They had to put aside Judaism. Rabbinical Judaism. Okay? In the case of other believers, it could be something else. The illustration again comes from an athletic race. Athletes used to train with weights on their feet or arms or anything else in order to help them prepare for the races. Later, when the race was run, they would take off every weight and run nearly naked. Why? Because we used to train with the weights. All right? They used to achieve a certain level. Now, when you took, took off the weights, you were lighter and you were able to move a lot quicker. Okay? And uh, later, when the race was run, they would run almost naked. What weights should we take off so we may run the race? Each one is different. Okay? Everything that is an obstacle to progress. It could be something good, but if it hinders, we must, must get rid of it. We must choose not just the good, but the better. Some people are satisfied with the good enough. Don't be satisfied with the good enough. Always strive for the better and, if possible, for the best. Amen? Secondly, we are to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. This is a specific sin because it is a definite article in the Greek. And in the Greek, the definite article is the index finger. Doesn't talk just about any sin, but a specific sin. Which is the specific sin in your life? Only you know. Some people's sins, I mean, some of our sins are evident. But there are other sins that are hidden. And only we know about it, or so we think. But God knows about them too, doesn't he? Amen? So we need to uh, lay it aside, every sin. For these Jewish believers, it was the sin of moving away from faith in Christ and returning to Judaism. For us, it might be something different, hindering us from remaining in the spiritual path. Lay aside whatever sin that is and keep on running with endurance. This race begins at the moment of our salvation and continues until the day of death. Some people think they're going to arrive at a certain point in their Christian life and they will be done. Nope. There's no rest in this life. Our rest is in Jesus, to be sure. But the strive for, for uh, running the race continues until the day we reach heaven. Okay? It's a lifelong race. And the Greek word for race is agonas. What word do we get from? Agony. Very fitting, isn't it? Because the race is what? Is it easy or is it difficult? Difficult. And I'm not talking about running from that corner to that. I'm talking about running 26, what is it, miles? The marathon or kilometers? Miles. 26 miles. Now, when you're running a marathon, you have to train for four years in advance 
in order before you start running the marathon and many people don't make it. It's hard. So when you're running and you're at the finish line almost, you come in for the last few hundred feet, they say, I don't know because I never ran the marathon, but they say that at that point, the writer, uh, the writer, the runner has tunnel vision. All he can see or she can see is the finish line, cannot see anything else. Exhaustion is so great that they just concentrate on getting there the last few feet of the race to make it. Okay? It's, an ag it's agony. It's agonizing. That's where the word comes from. Okay? It is an agonizing race, and this is why we must run it with patience and endurance. When you start running the marathon, you don't start running with everything you've got. You start slow. doesn't matter whether you're first or second or third or 20th. You've got to pace yourself. Because if you exert all your energy at the beginning of the race, you're not going to make it to the end. Okay? So we see here that we need patience and we need endurance. And thirdly, it says, let us run the race that is set before us. In other words, don't be sitting down. Resting Jesus doesn't mean sitting down doing nothing. It means running the race. So first we look at the cloud of witnesses. Then we look at ourselves. Thirdly, we look unto Jesus. Look at verse 2 of our text. Okay? Let us run the race that is before us. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The greatest runner in history was not Jesse Owens. The greatest runner in history was Jesus Christ. Amen? His race was a lot harder. In this verse, the writer exhorts his readers to look unto Jesus. This is not a casual look. When it says, look unto Jesus... Is not just a casual look. The Greek word means more than that. It means to look away to Jesus. It means to fix your eyes on Jesus. After glancing at the cloud of witnesses, yeah, for he is the goal. Now, Jesus Christ not only reached the goal, he is the goal. He is the goal. It describes an attitude of faith, not a single act. In the agonizing race, we must all run. What is that attitude? It is an attitude of patience and endurance. Jesus himself had in his suffering. Was the Lord patient? Did he endure? Oh, my goodness. This is an exhortation to look away from all distractions and focus our eyes upon the finish line, which is Jesus himself. His human name is used here. It doesn't say Christ. It says Jesus because the writer is focusing on his experience as a man, not as God. Namely, his pain, suffering, humiliation, shame, and death. The witnesses of chapter 11 are good but they are not perfect examples, since they all had weaknesses. 
Jesus is the only perfect example, and this is why he calls him the author and finisher of our faith. The word author means the pioneer, the chief, the leader. And the same word that he, he used in chapter 2, verse 10, when he, when he calls him the author of salvation. Jesus is the author of our salvation, which we obtain by saving faith. Now the writer speaks about living faith, by which a believer lives the spiritual life. Jesus is the author of both kinds of faith. Jesus is the author of our saving faith, and Jesus is the author of our living faith. <clears throat> so Jesus then is the author, pioneer, chief leader of our faith. He is also the finisher of our faith. He is the one who completes or perfects our faith. He is the one who carries it to completion. Jesus is the beginner and the finisher of our faith. And this is why he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. Are you able to read that in your notes? Alpha and Omega. See, now you learn two letters of the Greek alphabet. The first and the last. That's why he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. If the uh, Bible or the New Testament had been written in English, it would have said, I am A and Z. Okay? Meaning I'm the beginning and I'm the end. Having said this, <clears throat> the writer shows how Jesus is our example. While on earth, he lived by faith, trusting and honoring his Father in everything he did and said. Isn't that amazing that he said, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes and caves, but the Son of Man doesn't have where to lay his head? Isn't that interesting? Did you ever stop to think about this? The owner of the universe had nothing on earth. Nothing. And he did it for us. He stripped himself of everything so that he could come to our level to save us, to identify with us. That's why God does not accept any excuses from any man, any man or woman. He went, he, he went through, through it all. See? In chapter 2, verse 13... The writer had quoted from Isaiah 8:17, where it says, I will put my trust in him. See, that's Jesus speaking in prophecy. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 8, 700 years before he was even born. Okay, I will put my trust in him. And this, he surely did. And as we read the, the, the four Gospels, what do we see? We see the life of Jesus completely trusting the Father. Completely trusting the Father. He knew that he came to this world to do the will of the Father. Okay? I must do the works or the will of him that sent me. His purpose was only one, to glorify the Father in everything he did. We see in the Gospels how the Lord Jesus relied and trusted in his Father completely. And the fact that he prayed to him often is proof of this. Imagine that. Jesus prayed often. Now, why did he need to pray being God? 
Well, he did not pray as God. He prayed as man. But even as the perfect man, he had to pray every day constantly in, in close communion with the Father. And how many of us do that? Many times we let days go by before we even have a word of prayer. How can we live the Christian life without being plugged into the Father? Our Lord did more than, than this, though. He endured more than anyone else ever did. He endured the cross. The writer tells us that for the joy that was set before him, endure the cross. Now imagine this. The Lord Jesus Christ is suffering. He had just finished a night of constant torture, beating. They spat on his face. They scourged him with a cat of nine tails. You know what the cat of nine tails was? It was the whip the Romans used. It was a whip of many strands. And in the tip of the strands, they had little pieces of bone, of metal put there. So every time they lashed at the back of the prisoner and they pulled the, 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 the whip, that will tear into the flesh. Okay? Now imagine that. And then on top of that, the crown of thorns. The thorns, those of you that went to Israel, if you saw any thorns, they are this long. And they're hard. When they're green, they're hard. And remember that he was crucified in spring when everything is flourishing. So the thorns were fresh. And they went inside his skull. Then they beat him with a rod on top of the head. They punched his face. After he went through all that for a whole night, then he picked up the cross, that heavy cross, and walked all the way to Calvary carrying that cross. Now picture that, the suffering he was going through. And the Bible here tells us that for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In his suffering, he had joy. Why? First, because he was fulfilling the Father's will, the Father's work, and secondly, because he saw each and every one of us in the future trusting him and being saved. And that gave him joy. And that was his motivation to be able to endure unto the end. Untold suffering. None of us has suffered like that. None. And it says here that for the joy that was said before him, endure the cross and we see here the reason for his suffering he was willing to suffer because of the twofold goal set before him to sit at the right hand of God the Father being restored to glory like he prayed in John 17 5 and to accomplish man's salvation that's why at the cross he said it is finished he accomplished it This was his goal and why he endured. Looking forward to, the, to these two things gave him joy and strength to go through what he did. He suffered the most shameful of deaths, for he knew what it would accomplish. We should be willing to suffer for Jesus, remembering that he suffered for us. Jesus knew 
that death on the cross was shameful, but what did he do? He despised the shame and <coughs> accepted it willingly for us. He accomplished both his fullness of joy and our salvation. After that, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean to sit at the right hand of the throne of God the Father? It means he has the place of honor. And the fact that he's sitting down, as we said earlier when we're studying the earlier chapters of Hebrews, the fact that he's sitting down means that his work has been accomplished. Remember when I told you the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple, there were no chairs in there because their work was never done? Unlike them, the work of Jesus is done. Is completed, and that's why he's sitting. And he's sitting at the place of honor, the right hand. The verb is in the perfect tense in Greek, which means that he sat down in the past, and he's still sitting there looking at the great work he accomplished. His joy is complete, and ours should be too. Are you joyful this morning? And I'm not talking about some stupid, you know, happiness. I'm talking about joy, inner joy. Even in the midst of difficulties, we have joy. Jesus had it, and he gives it to us too through the Holy Spirit. That's why Christians can rejoice in tribulations. The world doesn't understand this, and we didn't either until we got saved. Now we can understand why. We are able to rejoice even in the midst of tribulations. So when everything goes wrong in your life, rejoice. Everything is going just fine. If everything is okay in your life, something's wrong in the state of Denmark. Check your life. People think that if everything is, you know, smooth sail, it's God's will. No, not necessarily. Remember Jonah? All the circumstances were perfect for him to run away from God. At first, the boat was there. Where was it sailing? The opposite direction of where God told him to go. Did he get on the boat? Yep, he paid the ticket, went on the boat. Was the boat sailing in that direction? Yeah, he was sailing in that direction. Everything was going fine until everything started going bad. So when everything started going bad, that's when everything started going good. Because Jonah was able to return via submarine to the place where God was, you know, told him to go in the first place. Huh? Was everything going okay in Job's life? Was everything going okay? Oh, no, it wasn't. He had prosperity. He was a rich man. He was the Rockefeller of that time. Read the first chapter of Job. You see how many riches he had. And on top of it, he had 10 children. I'm convinced he had to be a Dominican. <laughs> 10 children. And in one day, he lost everything. But when everything started to go wrong, that's when everything began to go in okay. Because he was able to understand what God was teaching him. And then God blessed him, gave him twice the riches he had before, and he again gave him ten children. Now, why didn't he give him twice 
as many children as he did riches. You know why? Because when he died and they died in heaven, how many children does he have? Twenty. So you see, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Amen? Yep. So, so that's why I don't believe at all in these uh, preachers on TV that, you know, get saved and everything will be fine. That's a lie. Everything will be fine as far as your spiritual life is concerned, as far as your inheritance in heaven is concerned, but not as far as your life here on earth is concerned. So many Christians went through horrible suffering throughout the centuries, and they still do today in some countries. So you tell me that those Christians did not believe in Christ, or they are not doing things okay? No. The will of God is not the same for everybody. And the Lord said it already. In the world you shall have what? Tribulation, suffering, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. See? So don't believe this prosperity gospel they preach on TV. It's a false gospel. It's an accursed gospel. Christian life many times, the Christian life many times is a life of suffering. It's a life of adversity. It's a life of difficulty. But with Jesus, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen? So always move forward, looking unto Jesus. And look now at verse 3. In verse 3, we read, For consider him who endures such hostility from sinners against himself. Who's him? Jesus. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The writer exhorts believers here to consider him, okay, that is Jesus, and think how far they should go in their own suffering for him and how far should we go in our suffering for him and how much we should be willing to endure. Consider means reason up, compare, weigh. From it we get the word analogy. That's the Greek word. Okay? Analogizo in the Greek. We get the analogy. And it was used, this word, word was used in Greek for adding up a column of figures to get a, a grand total. Like when you add it up in school. How many of you go to school? You, did you have to do addition? And after you add up, what do you have at the bottom? The summer, the sum, okay, the total. That's what the word means, to add and get a result, okay? And in, in, in this case, it is used to give the readers a total picture of the sufferings of Jesus. Believers should, from time to time, review and meditate every point and detail of our Lord's sufferings, constru constructing a mental analogy of Christ's passion, that is, his sufferings, and death for us. Understanding Jesus is the key to cure doubt, hesitation, and lack of faith. Jesus' sufferings include hostility. The Greek word means to speak against, to contradict, referring to the opposition he suffered from sinners, which included verbal abuse, rejection, and all manner of ridicule. 
So if you are rejected and you're ridiculed, remember that he was rejected and ridiculed before you. Never ask and say, why me? No, you need to ask, why not me? Who are you? Who am I? We're nothing compared to him. Okay? So, by contemplating how much he suffered, they and we as well will keep from becoming weary and discouraged. When comparing his sufferings to ours, we realize ours are nothing in comparison. So let us remember also that he suffered as the sinless one. He had no sin and suffered for us. And that makes it even stronger. When the apostles were beaten, when they were persecuted, what did they do? Lament? Did they feel sorry for themselves? No, the Bible says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for him. Okay? So, now we come. It says here in verse 4, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Though these Hebrew believers were suffering persecution, they had not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. This means that none of the people the writer is addressing had suffered to the point of death. They had suffered quite a lot, to be sure. But they had not become martyrs yet. Resist is a military term, meaning to, st to stand in opposition against, against in line of battle. To stand face to face against. Believers should be willing to stand on the battle line and shed their blood. They must strive against sin. Even if that means death. Strive is the word we get, from that word we get the word antagonism. We must be antagonistic against sin to the point of death, if it need be. It has the same root as the word race, agonas. Antagonism means to agonize again. So we must be willing to run the race, being antagonistic to sin, to the point of being willing to die. A lot of people, most people, are antagonistic towards other people. Isn't that true? Yes or no? We must not be antagonistic against other people. We must be antagonistic against sin. Nowadays, a certain group of people when you disagree with them, they attack you. And that's wrong. Because I can disagree. Because I disagree with something doesn't mean that you need to, be, to attack me. If, I, if you disagree on something, I don't have the right to attack you. I might disagree with you, but I must not become disagreeable. Amen? People who do that are ignorant. And they're very small. Jesus did not antagonize people. He antagonized sin. And if people took the side of sin, well, then he dealt with that. But he always did it with a great motive, motive of love to open their eyes. And yeah, I, I, gather, I get it. Sometimes we got it. Love ha must be tough. But you do it for the right reasons and the right motive, not for selfish reasons. 
Is that clear? So having seen here the example of Jesus, what are we to do? Huh? We must imitate him. First, we look at the cloud of witnesses. Then we look at ourselves. Then we look unto Jesus. Amen? I hope you, you, you keep that in mind. You look up, you look... We thank you for listening to this message and pray that the Word of God spoke to your heart. To listen to previous sermons, please visit us at www.cbttbc.com or anchor.fm forward slash cbt hyphen sermons.